This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Today we're talking about poverty and its impact on student health needs. My guest is Dr. Robert Atkins, an associate professor at Rutgers University in Camden, New Jersey, and the national program director of the Robert Wood, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's New Jersey Health Initiatives Program. Previously, Dr. Atkins worked as a school nurse and co-founded the Camden Star Program, a nonprofit youth development program in Camden. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for being here. Oh, Allison, thank you for inviting me. This is great. So let's start talking about you. You you started out in college preparing to be a lawyer. How did you come to your senses and then decide to be a student? <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot that I mentioned to you that that was my first aspiration. I, I was a political science mm-hmm. major with a, a um, minor in American civilizations, and like all of those political science majors, I assumed I'd be taking the LSAT and going to law school, but... Um, in the time between graduating and taking the LSAT, I was working with youth in a, um, a child and adolescent psych facility, and, and I really enjoyed that kind of work. I enjoyed getting the opportunity to talk to kids and, and get to know the kids and, and that they're getting better. And I started to really enjoy kind of health care and being in the healthcare system and thinking about health. And before I knew it, I was off that pathway trajectory towards law school and on a trajectory towards, um, yeah, somehow I got into a nursing program at University of Pennsylvania, and two years later I'm a, I'm a school nurse in Camden, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, so, so it was, it was really quick. Exactly? It wasn't something I planned out. <laughs> right. Well, it was a smart, I think, a smart detour on your part. Um, no, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it that way, but, yeah, it wasn't it was a definitely a detour. <laughs> What, tell us about your day to day. What what do school nurses do other than you know the typical things that that people think of, taking temperatures and administering medication? Right, right. It was it was nothing that I'd uh, right. It was it's but it, with the, the happy surprises of my life. What all that a school nurse does, and it's probably um, the stereotypical things that you imagine that a school nurse does, which some involves the screenings, right? So we have to make sure the kids are are ready to learn. And that they can mm-hmm. see the board and they can hear the instruction being um, given to them and that they are growing appropriately. And, and there's also, of course, the basic first aid and the assessment of those kinds of things. But that's that's probably a small part of, of what my day-to-day was. I mean, in the city of Camden, which is uh, one of the poorest communities in the United States, um, kids came to school with just a range of of acute and subacute health problems that um right that they would come into the school nurse office with things that range from um I twisted my ankle over the weekend and of course you know maybe they didn't twist it maybe they fractured it but and they're limping and, and they may have like a, a sad little ace bandage wrapped around it but um 
the parents would go see the school nurse. And some kids came with, you know, some really serious things like strep throat, um, which is, uh, you know, something that they need to be treated with antibiotics. And I can't dispense that as a school nurse, but still they're in my office, so I'd have to, um, you know, do my best to make sure they get referred and get seen for that. Um, and just everything in between. So, and, and a lot of psychosocial stuff. I mean, as you imagine, in a high-poverty, distressed environment, kids are exposed to a lot um, in their homes and in their communities that are that are stressful. Um, and, and, mm-hmm. and being in poverty is stressful. And kids that came to my office were stressed. And so a lot of those kids were dealing with that. Some were anxious, some were depressed, some were just having a hard time. Focusing or dealing with something that happened, and so there's a lot of a lot of my time was spent doing that. Not not so much of those kind of stereotypical kinds of things that you expect of school nurses, which which I did those too, but a lot of it went towards mm-hmm. those kind of uh, other things. Mm-hmm. And you've actually done some research on the effects of poverty and the effects of stress that that poverty brings on the health and wellness of children, even from the womb. Will you talk about your findings? Yeah, I mean, one one of the things that that I was interested in um, as a school nurse was understanding why certain kids were able to, um, despite all the kind of adversity that they encountered, were were really um, surprisingly able to do really well. I mean, they were what we call resilient. I mean, this idea of, of resilience is not new, but um, we know that just some individuals, I mean, individuals have a different kind of reaction to adversity. Some really kind of wither from it, and some really just kind of seem to just um, do really well. And, and it's always surprising to me that, you know, even within the school environment, you see some kids that no matter what was happening, they just seem to be able to just kind of navigate around all these obstacles and all these barriers and, and just kind of um and it's hard. I mean it's like it was really hard in that uh, I was in a middle school, fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth grade and fights would break out and kids would get in trouble for different things and and there were some kids that just kind of always seemed to kind of just just be all right. And so this resilience was really interesting, this kind of personality, these kids and so I got interested in understanding this kind of personality or this disposition and, and understanding, you know, where does this personality or disposition come from? And how it's influenced by the environment. And one of the things that we know about um, what we call temperament, which is in some ways the, the foundation of personality, is that some of it's inherited, right? Just like you inherit your eye color or um, your height or your um, thickness of your lips or whatever, um, you know, that's inherited. Just you get that from your parents. And so in the same way, temperament is in some ways inherited. But in some ways it's also influenced by the environment. And some of what I looked at in my kind of early research was looking at how the um, the prenatal and postnatal and early childhood environment influenced the development of personality. And so kids that were in environments that were very stressful, how were they influenced by, um, how was their personality influenced by by the environment? And so we looked at some things around, um, we looked at these really big data sets and looked at um, stressors. At, and some of the stressors were things like, um, Things that would stress out health, so parental kind of um, behaviors during the prenatal period, like smoking or drinking or not getting prenatal care. Um, but it's really interesting, kind of also kind of the stressors of of living in um, you know environments that we know to be stressful, so impoverished environments, and looking at that. And um, probably not surprisingly, we found that 
kids that grow up in um, very stressful environments were more likely to develop these kind of personality types that were not what we call resilient, kind of break personality. And a lot of what you think about personality sometimes is um, these personality traits that we look at. Sometimes they call the big five, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Um, and mm-hmm. that's one way to think about personality. And another way is to take those personality traits and look at the way that they fall into personality types. And typically people fall into one of three categories. Resilient, which is what I talked about earlier. Um, and those mm-hmm. individuals are able to modulate their emotions really effectively and are able to kind of deal with diversity really well. We have under-controlled, and those individuals are prone to being um, aggressive or have externalizing kind of problems, and we have what are called over-controlled individuals, and they tend to kind of fall into um, internalizing problems like depression and anxiety. And individuals that are exposed to stress are more likely to develop what we find to be these kind of under-controlled or over-controlled kinds of personality types. And unfortunately, these personality types are not really conducive to learning really well or getting along socially very well. And, and uh, you know, we found the kids that are groping in very stressful environments are more likely to kind of, you know, be characterized by those kind of personality types, which makes, you know, learning very hard. And again, it's another kind of... Um, reaction to uh, being in a stressful or uh, impoverished environment. But you did find That was long-winded, I'm sorry. What did you say? No, don't, don't apologize. It was really helpful. You yeah. you were able to find resilient personalities, though, even in the the most impoverished communities. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, well, that, that's, that, that was kind of what drew me to this research and, and just that, you know, we found most, most, and I should say, most kids, even in stressful environments, most kids are resilient. I mean, most kids are um, able to do very well. I mean, and I think, um, you know, we, we, even in, you know, even even in the most stressful environments like Canada, there were, most of the kids are resilient. Um, there's a higher proportion in these kind of stressful environments that are under-controlled or over-controlled than, they, than there are in more um, affluent or advantaged environments. But still, most of the population um, in, this, in these communities are resilient, and that's um, mm-hmm. and, then, and and my kind of experience, and that and that was also kind of um, constant with the experience that I had with these kids. I mean, the kids that I met in Camden were were great. They were they were ambitious and smart and funny and caring and and just and 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 so much like the kids that I grew up with. And so, mm-hmm. and it kind of flew in the face of everything that you'd expect, right? I mean, everything that you've been told from the media, and I should I should. Um, preface this by saying that I grew up outside of Camden um, in, a, in a kind of affluent suburb a few miles away. But everything I heard about Camden was like, oh, it's a dangerous place, and it's um, bad things happen, there's bad things there. But you get there, and you meet these these great kids and these really caring parents, and everyone's just trying to do, do the best they can in this really kind of challenging environment. But um, the kids were, yeah, the kids were great, and, and they and they what well, kind of drew me to get interested in research was like, you know, since these kids are great, um, you know, what's going on here? And and so in personality was a piece of that. Some of the kids were um, you know, developing these personality types that were not really uh conducive to um to learning or to being able to get on the pathway to a healthy and constructive adulthood. And and I think I don't know if you've looked at Paul Tuff's book, um that I talked about grit and no, I'll get the name of the book, but but anyway, it's about non cognitive skills and how these influence um, learning outcomes, and it's uh, and it, and it 
you know, reading, I'm like, oh, this is, he's really kind of, in a lot of ways, he's talking about personality types, and he's talking about different kinds of things that we don't really measure, and not really necessarily talking about IQ, even though IQ is, is associated with the personality, and, and, and GPA is associated with personality, but we're talking about non-cognitive skills that influence how kids do, and how they um, how they do in a classroom, and how they do outside the classroom, and, and so... Yeah, so it's uh, so it was really interesting, but I should really emphasize that the kids that I met in Camden, um, and and I ended up buying a house in Camden, and my first child was born in Camden, and um, mm-hmm. I, as Allison pointed out, I worked in in the city, run youth development groups. I had the experience to really enjoy and the privilege to work with these kids, and they are amazing. And um, a lot of the kids we work with um, are leading healthy, constructive adulthoods right now. We're actually having a we, we ran this youth development program for um, like 16 years in Camden, and uh, we're having a reunion canoe trip this weekend. So anybody that wants to come to uh, Camden, <laughs> New Jersey, we're taking kids, we're taking them canoeing on Saturday um, in, in the in the Pine <laughs> Barrens, which is, yeah, so it's fun. So Allison, you want invited? If you want to come up, you know, I, I've got there. a canoe I'll for you. <laughs> Bring the kids. <laughs> It'll be fun. It's uh, it is it is a fun, it is a fun trip. A lot, a lot of the kids that. Now they're growing up. I mean, so these kids were. I know I've known some of these kids since they were seven or eight years old, and now they're, mm-hmm. and now they're adults. Um, and now they, and, so, and a lot of them have kids. And so we're having a reunion, um, canoe trip. So that's kind of that's going to be fun this weekend. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I I think this this point is really important that you know most of the children that you studied were resilient um, yeah. and. You know, you and I spoke at the American Educational Research Association convention out in San Francisco a few months ago, and we talked about poverty and advocacy and what the the researchers can be doing to support advocacy efforts around poverty. And, you know, we mentioned some of the, the neuroscience research that's out there about the impacts of poverty on the brain, and one of the researchers came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, that, that research really concerns me because mm. what it allows people to do is then right. assume that because you are born into poverty, the way that, that people right. make assumptions about race, because you are born into poverty, you will automatically be one of these under-controlled or over-controlled right. children. Right. And, and that right. there will be no resilience within that group of, of people. Um, and so she, her point was just that it is not a genetic trait. Poverty is not a genetic trait that no. then automatically means that there will be these impacts on the brain um, or right. impacts or, or manifestations in children that you can just right. expect. Um, right. So I think that's a really, really, really important point. No, and I think, and I think that is, um, and, I, and I share her concern. I do share that concern because there are some, um, let's say groups or individuals of a certain um, political ideology who would love to be able to say, look, we should write these people, look, the research says. I mean, they use the research mm-hmm. to kind of write as, as a weapon against. Um, but I, I And I do think we also should, I mean, I also have to acknowledge that, um, and we know that, that brains are plastic, right? And that um, even kids that do develop under-controlled or over-controlled um, kind of um, personality characteristics, um, we can work with those kids. I mean, it's not like it's not like mm-hmm. we should say, "Oh, we got to write them off." I mean, there's those kids that are uncontrolled. Um, that right, maybe they need kind of modifications that we can work with. So, so some kids that develop these um, kind of traits that we can work with. And I, and I think the other piece of it is that we want to make sure that we are putting enough resources in so the kids don't develop it 
This is something that I, mm-hmm. I, I think is important also, that it's something that's developed from uh, a lot of ways stress. We know that stress changes um, some of the um, some of the brain structures in some way, right? I mean, so um, mm-hmm. we, we, we know that cortisol, you know, and, and cortisol is actually something that we've done a little bit of research on in a classroom in Camden is actually look at cortisol profiles of kids and see if they match up with these personality types. And, and they and do, in fact. Uh, but my, my colleague Dan Hart um, published a study that looked at these cortisol profiles. But I think um, the important thing to remember is that um, this is something that is, they're not born with this. This is something that mm-hmm. the environment actually kind of um, influences. So if we can prevent this environment, I think it, it kind of, um, really suggests or kind of screams at us that look, we got to really lean hard on this because you know this is kind of disadvantaging the kids outside the womb. This isn't something that they're, they're kind of there's some extent that you know right we know that temperament um, is is in some ways inherited, but we also have to remember that there are things going on in this outside environment that that kind of interact with this this back and forth between the genetic and the environment that influence kind of what we get, um, and so. Um, we have to, one, try to make sure that kids aren't exposed to these kind of really adverse, um, stressful environments so that we know to be damaging. And then the kids that are, that's fine. We, we do have interventions that, that are successful in helping these kids develop better ways of um, adapting and, and working within their environments so that we get the kind of healthy, constructive adulthood that we want for all kids and that our society needs. We don't, we don't need to have any kids that are kind of... Um, that are outside or in the periphery because we said, oh, you know, uh, poverty, we just can't deal with it. So, you know, it's just kind of just what we get. And so mm-hmm. everyone loses. Nobody wins. No, Nobody wins. And I think that's the, we really have to kind of emphasize is that, you know, we're going to pay one way or the other. Either we put the resources in right. at the beginning or we're going to put the resources in later, but we're going to pay. And, 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 and we're denying ourselves. And we, we're deprived as a society when we have a segment of the population um, that is, in stressful, impoverished environments, that just aren't able to participate and 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 contribute meaningfully to society. Mhm, mhm. You know that that of course um, brings to mind the the recent news um, on Saturday night. The jury in the Trayvon Martin murder case acquitted George Zimmerman of murder and manslaughter. And much of the conversation about the case and the verdict have been framed in terms of race which I think really highlights the importance of separating the concepts of poverty and race in our social consciousness. Trayvon Martin could have been the kid of wealthy parents, all else the same, and and likely still would not be here today. Um, And so, you know, there's been a lot of of research done recently about implicit bias and that you know, implicit bias is not the overt racism that the law really protects, which is right. why I think you know a civil rights um, division intervention here from the Department of Justice is is maybe not very likely. Um, right. But I think you know the effects, the impacts of of implicit bias and assumptions about um, categories of people. Um, for you know, children of color and for children living in poverty, is very mm-hmm. stressful. But there's also then a shame that attaches to one's condition. You know, so if you are black yeah. or if you are poor, you you will feel some shame in yourself and in your upbringing. Will you sure. talk about this is, and tell us, you know, in your interactions with young people, how do you counteract that stress and shame? Yeah, yeah, and and I think um, right and. Uh, 
I'm just blinking on the the re, this is my area of research, but we we know from research that, and I, I'm just blanking on the uh, the research that's done this, but there's some really interesting work around these kinds of, of these bias and this kind of um, self awareness that when individuals mm-hmm. are um, take an SAT or take a standardized test, and they had them take a standardized test, and and one group and they randomly field. assigned them. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's Claude Steele? Is that who you're thinking of? Oh, yes. Yeah, Claude Steele. Claude mm-hmm. Steele's work. I mean, that just kind of, um, right. I mean, we were kind of looking at, yeah, when, when they when they have to kind of identify, they they already have this kind of like, oh, my goodness. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think I see that, you know, and I saw that working anecdotally with the kids in Camden is that, um, and I think it's hard not to. I mean, when they mm-hmm. can turn on the TV and see or look on the Internet or for kids in Camden drive three miles, and see this um these communities that don't look like their communities where there isn't broken glass on playgrounds where there's not this run down equipment where they they have beautifully manicured lawns and and beautiful schools and um and life doesn't look like the life they're living and I think in some ways it just has to give you this message that oh you're less than you know society looks at you as less than they if obviously they look at you as less than you're not part of this this um this beautiful Disney world that's outside of Camden um, that gets, you know, kind of blasted into your head every day on TV um, where, you know, where there's plenty of resources and there's and kids are cherished and kids are um, in safe environments and kids um, are in homes where there's a lot of resources being, being poured into them. Uh, and so I, I think it's, I think part of what you're fighting against is, 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 is trying to get kids to, Look past that and and think about mm-hmm. you know um, how is there a piece for them in society? How do we kind of give them to the table? How do we get them on these paths? And because I think they are getting messages of saying, oh, we we obviously we don't care about you um, because mm-hmm. look where you live, you know. And I think that's mm-hmm. um, kind of one of the things that you know what we try to do in our program is to um, bring kids into environments and give them experiences that allow them to. Just expand their horizons. Just see kind of more of kind of what's out there. Because I think you know one of the things that we did every summer in our in our youth development program was take kids to Vermont for a week, um, and that was just a different world for them. I mean, getting out of the city of Camden was one thing. Um, they were they were excited. Just a lot of the kids were excited just to get on um, the New Jersey Turnpike. They're like, "This is the Turnpike. We're on the Turnpike." Uh, it was always funny um, because a lot of them were just kind of really cut off. I mean, cut off from um, socially and. Um, culturally, just from like this big world, a lot, a lot of them, their, their world was just Camden, and so I think what we had to do was and, and TV, you know, they, that, that's that's mm-hmm. how they experienced the world was through what they walked around and saw and what they saw on the TV, um, but they just weren't able to see enough. So what we tried to do is kind of and to help kind of combat this bias and let them see people in different environments and let them see because I think they thought people of color all live in places like this, but it was great to take them into like you know what? no, there's people of color in Vermont. And the people of color in Canada, and the people of color living totally different lives that you weren't really exposed mm-hmm. to, that that you can access. You can. This can be you. You know, if we take them to college campuses and show them, you know, different kinds of groups and who's there and kind of what's going on there, and just kind of to um, give them, you know, just a um, a touchstone or a place or something to latch onto to think that there's more than kind of. They're only seeing through the keyholes, kind of what's out there in the world, and, and just trying to expand that and let them kind of see. You know whether what other kinds of opportunities exist um, because you know I think they're just so limited and, and it always drove me a little bit crazy when you know, ask um, 
you know, 10-year-old, 11-year-old what you want to be, and um, a lot of them would just kind of, they just didn't know. They said, I don't know, I want to be an athlete. I want to be a professional athlete, or I want to, you know, some would say I want to be a pediatrician or a lawyer, but I'm just, you know, or be a rapper, or and like, oh, you don't know. There's other, there's other people. There's, there's college professors, and there's, and there's, and then, and there's, you know, people that aren't doctors, but there's nurses and dentists, and um, there's uh, accountants, and all these kinds of things. They just, they, they were kind of um, cut off from just all this information, and so I, I think that's kind of one of the ways that we can combat these kinds of. Um, it's kind of bias in a lot of these kids, you know, it's just by kind of trying to give them other opportunities to kind of see what else is out there. Mm-hmm. So I'd venture to say that you are not what people think of when they think of school nurses. No, <laughs> no. I would surprise a lot of people, Allison. You wouldn't believe people come to my office. And, they used to come to my office and I'm looking for the school nurse. And I'm, like, and I'm sitting at the desk. I'm like, yeah, how can I help you? Oh no, I'm looking for the school nurse. It is me. It is me. Um, and I should, for your listeners, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of tall and um, kind of black and uh, I'm kind of male. And so it wasn't, it wasn't what they wasn't what uh, what people expected to be. And people would hang up the phone. They call my office and be like, oh, school, "I'm school nurse, please." Clearly, uh, wrong number. Click. They hang up. Call back. I'm like, "Still me." That's hang crazy. up again if you want. But still. Oh. It was fun. I well, how how has that helped you in connecting with students and families and staff? How how has it it helped you to be kind of not not what people expect to see? Well, I mean, I think that was part of it. I mean, I think, I think that was part of dealing with kind of, like I said, some of the um, the stereotypical kinds of notions that the kids and adults had in terms of what what possibilities were. I mean, I think I think for kids, um, I, I know especially males in my building. I mean, one of one of my um, unique kind of rewards in being in that job was um, after a year, um, kids would come in and be like, "What? You're nurse? Men aren't nurses." But after a year, kids would say, you know, I want to be a nurse. And I was like, what? Mm. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and so to see, like, um, for, for kids to kind of identify with, um, like, oh, yeah, well, why wouldn't, like, Atkins is a nurse, you know, and why wouldn't. And so it was always like, when I, whenever whenever a, uh, a, a, um, a male student would tell me he wanted to be a nurse, I was like, wow. I mean, I guess I am making some sort of difference here. It's hard, you know, obviously, working with adolescents to ever see that you're making any difference. Because uh, you only know in retrospect. I mean, and that's when kids come to me, and and um, and so it's still interesting now to have kids I used to work with and tell me that they're they're going to nursing or they're going to healthcare or they're doing something that is um, the not the stereotype, right? And and so, um, but it was fun. It was fun being around kids, and I think kind of in um, I, and going back to this, I mean, I think kind of one of the things in the youth development program, one of the things that. I think attracted kids to our program was this opportunity, and and I should say I also have four brothers um, who helped me a lot with the program, and so they would come. But you know, um, again, we did not necessarily we looked like these kids, right? We looked like the kids in Camden, but we didn't speak like them, right? We grew up in you know affluent white suburbs, um, and kids would say to me, "Oh, you talk white? Why you talk like that?" And I was like, "Oh, I was like, oh, we got to work on that, you know, because." Right. And, and I think it's help, helpful to have, you know, Barack Obama in office where they listen to how he speaks. Mm-hmm. And, they, and again, again, they get this other notion of kind of what it means to be. But I think they, they felt like to be authentic, they had to use 
All these kids felt they had to use. They they even knew better, but they felt like they had to use. And it's like, no, you can be authentic. You can be yeah. blacker than black, you know. Without um, that's mm-hmm. not that's not what it means to be a person of color is to use, um, you know, this kind of this, this other English as an alternative way of speaking. I said you can if you want, but I mean, I think you're also mm-hmm. kind of cutting yourself off. And so, so I think it was helpful for them to me. Like, look, you know, I don't I don't have to speak in any way that other than. Uh, the way that I, I know how to speak, and I'm authentic, and I'm here, and I'm here for you, and I'm living in your community, and I'm, I'm shopping at the stores that you shop at, and um, mm-hmm. and you know, and and there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't have, somehow diminish you. Um, you're not in any way selling out, and I think kind of that's what we kind of have to work against. Is is some of these kids think that oh, to do to speak in a certain way or to do well in school, you're kind of, and we know from research that that, that that's kind of one of the things that works against our, our kids of color is to kind of feel like they have to they have to kind of reject you know some way of speech or dress or or academic achievement because somehow it's it's not authentic and they're and they're acting in a certain way or say acting white. Um, and so, yeah, but I think it was good for them to see. And I, I think that's one of the things they came to the program for is to kind of see me and, and, and my brothers and other people that would come. And we had people, and I should say, we also had people that were volunteers in our program that were, um, and everyone in our program was a volunteer, but volunteers in our program that were, um, yeah, they were white and Asian. And um, I think there's just important for them to see that, yeah, there's there's, there's you know, you can be, Look one way, and, and a lot's going on. I mean, a lot's going on, and 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 so I think it was kind of. And the one reason they came was just to kind of see the way that I interacted with my siblings, the way I interacted with my wife, the way I interacted with my kids, and to kind of have these kind of role models for people to kind of bounce up against and kind of understand this again, like this other kind of of way of what it means to be a man in society. And I think a lot of these kids, unfortunately, because of you know some of it, because of um, psychoeconomic demographic circumstances, incarceration, and things like that, they, they weren't necessarily given the opportunity to interact with a lot of male role models. And and, and girls, too. I think girls also, I mean, that, that came to our program or girls that came to my office as a school nurse want to interact with this healthy male who just, um, right, kind of was a little bit different than what they're used to. Um, and I was young. When I started the school nurse, I was only 26, 27, so I was only a little bit older than them. And some of them would try to set me up with their parents, which was always interesting, you know, bring a picture in of their mother, um, you know, say she's, you know, single. And that was always kind of, <laughs> thank you. Um, but, very much. Uh, so, yeah, well, you know, thank you. She, your mother is very attractive. Um, I'm not dating kids' mothers right now, but um, we'll see. Um, so it was always fun. It and happen, you know, it always happens. <laughs> It was fun. It was a fun job. I'm telling you, Allison, I had a ball oh, in that job. My I can tell. I can absolutely yeah. tell. I, I had fun. Um, so I, I want you to talk about your program, but I want to touch briefly on um, something that you said just now, talking about authenticity and um, black vernacular. And you mentioned earlier IQ, and um, I think that, you know, We've seen this in in the the Trayvon Martin trial and conversations about Rachel Rachel Gentile, um, Martin's friend, who um, was on the phone mm. with him when he yeah. was killed and um, testified. And there's been a lot of conversation right. about the way that she speaks and um, right. her presence in the the courtroom and and sense. 
will you just talk about and and so there's a I think there's a tendency then to correlate the way that she speaks um her right. black vernacular with her IQ or with her right. intellectual ability. Um, right. Right. And so will you talk about, you know, what you saw in your children and, and um, you know, how that correlation is, is dangerous? Yeah, and I think kind of one of the things we did try to really emphasize with um, the kids, and this is obviously in the days before we had Barack Obama, but um, mm-hmm. to, for kids to understand that, you know, people people want to find ways to categorize. I think we've lost Robert. Um, bear with us. Hopefully, he'll he'll call back soon. Um, in the meantime, though, he was he was going to touch on IQ and this correlation between um, the use of black vernacular and um, especially as, as we've seen that conversation develop. And I think when thinking about educational equity, we have to be very mindful of how we're treating children and, and what we are the messages that we're sending them about who they are and where they come from. And uh, I think we we certainly can do a better job of making sure that children um are empowered and that they are um that they can see the value in their heritage and where they come from and who they are. Um and and that certainly is very, very important and I know that is has been a crucial component of of um, Dr. Atkins' work with youth in Camden, New Jersey. Um, I'm hoping that he'll be able to call back in very very shortly. Um, but if not, we've had a wonderful conversation. I think some of the key takeaways are that most kids, regardless of where they are, are resilient, and particularly for children living in low-income communities, um, poverty stricken communities, uh, for you know, for them to know that, that they are for the most part resilient and that they carry on uh, despite the stressors around them is an empowering message for them. Uh, I think it's also vitally important to know that we are more and more isolating children in um, poverty areas, in uh, neighborhoods where they are cut off from communicating with others and from seeing others and interacting with other people. And so their experience is their their limited range of their neighborhood and television. And uh as you know, as Dr. Atkins says, it's it's important that we allow children to be exposed to different things in society and and taking them on trips to Vermont and canoeing um, in New Jersey and and, um, elsewhere and and getting them on the New Jersey Turnpike, um, which is something that they've heard of and maybe haven't experienced is very important. And, um, you know, certainly here in Washington, D.C., where in in Southeast D.C. and Northeast D.C., you will find pockets of poverty and children who have never experienced the capital, which is only a few miles down the street. Um, children who've never seen the White House, which again is only a few miles down the street. And in this seat of power in D.C., uh, for children, any child to not have experienced that, um, to not know where the Supreme Court is located, and and to know that to not know that they themselves can um, have an impact on the laws that are interpreted there, is 
a travesty. And so I think that we really have a lot of work to do to make sure that all of our children are served, to make sure that all of our children recognize their own importance and their own intelligence, and that all of our children um, have access to the to the very same educational opportunities, no matter where they are, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from. So I want to thank you for joining us. I Unfortunately, we've lost Dr. Atkins, and I, I really appreciate his time. Uh, I appreciate you all joining us. Um, you are now officially certified know-it-alls about poverty's effects on student health needs. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Robert Atkins is a former school nurse. He is now with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in New Jersey, working on health initiatives there in New Jersey. I want to thank you all for listening. Please have a wonderful week.